So this episode is the start of a new study on a new book of the Bible. The heartbeat of the burning word is our invitation, that you would return to the word and encounter God again. We began with the book of Job, where over eight episodes, and with our digital companion study. The hope was to give you a podcast that guided you back to God's word, so that armed with the study, you could do a deep exploration, like someone exploring new caverns filled with unexpected discoveries where God could be encountered. So I wanted to offer that to you again, a new book, a new question, and a new companion study, available on our website, burningwordpodcast.com. The companion study for the next month is going to be free of charge with the promo code POLITICSOFJESUS. And that's because I want to offer you a resource you can sit down with and dive deep into the book of Revelation, this immense and mystifying book. However, instead of encountering this deep cavern alone, the study will be your guide, highlighting important crevices, guiding you around dangerous ravines, and pointing out to you the beauty and wonder that you may have missed before. So this episode, our first of a new study, I'm gonna introduce the politics of Jesus, the book of Revelation, and what's going on in Revelation chapter one that's offering us a political vision of royal priests. So with that said, let's dive in. think of when you think of the politics of Jesus? Perhaps even the mere mention of politics makes you nervous. I get that. Our politics today are divisive. I'm speaking as an American, and the nature of American politics having a two-party system causes us to deeply, sometimes even vehemently, to disagree with those we otherwise love over matters that can feel connected to the very core of our being. Yet I want us to start this journey unpacking the politics of Jesus in the book of Revelation by taking a step back to ask what politics actually means and where the term politics began. One of the best ancient sources to open up a conversation on politics has to be that of Aristotle in a short work he conveniently enough titled Politics. Here's what I find fascinating about Aristotle and his book Politics. In ancient Greece, all power in government was centralized in cities. This logically made sense. As farms grew and industries expanded, people naturally gravitated towards the safety and protection of walls, and armies were recruited to defend these centralized hubs. What we call cities, the Greek called polis, P-O-L-I-S in the English transliteration. And the polis literally became the hub of all life across the ancient world. If you were into the arts, if you were into culture, if you were into ideas, you had to go to the cities. This is, of course, very much the same today. I've lived in Chicago twice. It is vibrant. It is chaotic. It is teeming. It is alive. Yet the very life that cities draw actually presented a dilemma for Aristotle. In the ancient world, how did you guarantee a city wouldn't devolve into madness? How do you structure a community in such a way that everyone, while free, still cares for the common good and common life that you share with everyone else. Aristotle's specific question would become, what does it take for someone to find happiness, the good life, in a city? 
This question still intrigues me today. I know most of us don't live in the downtown of a nearby metropolitan, but even if you're in a suburb or somewhere more rural, it is impossible not to live in the interconnected web of your local community. And the same question confronts us today that confronted Aristotle back then. How do we make sense of this shared life together? How do we all seek the best possible good, the best possible life together, instead of remaining fragmented or even working against each other? For Aristotle, this is where politics come in. Politics were any public action done by the citizens of the city for the sake of their common good and shared life together. I mean, doesn't that make sense? How else could a city flourish? How else could everyone be free, but still share in a common life, a good life together? For Aristotle, it took the practical work of everyone contributing to politics. He broke it down this way. For a city to flourish, every person who is a citizen needs to be cultivating virtue. That is, when individuals sought goods like discipline, hard work, sacrifice, and restraint, essentially when citizens themselves were becoming good, then they would naturally seek good for others. This inevitably had to look very practical. A virtuous person, when they heard their neighbor didn't have eggs and that they had extra, would offer to share their eggs or at least sell them to their neighbor. Or perhaps more significantly, when a virtuous person hearing that there was a section of the city where water had been contaminated, they would join the workforce necessary to clean and then redirect fresh water to that section of the city. Or maybe there was a road that was broken down, a building that was crumbling, an internal conflict between two warring businesses. This involved good, virtuous people to offer practical, tangible actions like their skills, like their trade, like their mediation, in order for the good of the city to flourish. This was politics. It was political to do public actions to serve others in your city. Politics could look like holding the door. Politics could look like watching your neighbor's dog. But it also could look like bigger, sacrificial actions, offering your life and services to suffer and sacrifice on behalf of others for the good of your shared life together. And if you could do this, if you could be a virtuous person contributing publicly to the common good of the city, then everyone would flourish, not just some. This was Aristotle's logic and call to action. Politics required virtuous people to contribute to the common good of the city and to do so in concrete, public ways. If everyone committed to do this, then everyone would flourish. Clearly, our politics have come a long way since Aristotle. Or maybe they haven't. I can't help but feel like we've lost some of Aristotle's on-the-ground practical realism when he said, if communities that rely on each other are going to flourish, then everyone is going to have to pursue virtue and use public actions to contribute to the good of everyone else. Politics should be the commitment, the responsibility of everyone. Because we need everyone, not just those we label politicians, working together through concrete public actions to share in the communal good and seek a good life together. There's something quite noble and compelling and beautiful about the hope of recovering Aristotle's vision. Something very Aaron Sorkin or West Wing-esque about what politics could be. Yet, inevitably, while I admire Aristotle, 
The reason I've put this study together is that on his own, I think Aristotle's vision actually fails. He does not ask the key question, which is who should we look to to guide our politics? And maybe even further in a question that asks what kind of city are we even trying to build together? What is this good life that Aristotle's even talking about? Is it a life of freedom, a life of wealth, a life of power, a life of opportunity? Or is there something else worth living for? I think to follow Jesus is actually to be very political. What is more political in Aristotle's definition than the one who comes claiming to be king of all kings, who claims total allegiance, all-encompassing power, and calls those who follow him to be transformed in grace and love and then to concretely and publicly live out their love sacrificially for others. If that is the call of Christ, then to be a Christian is to engage in politics. To talk about politics is by necessity to reflect on our King, Jesus. So I'm going to argue in this study, Aristotle only got it partly right. We do need his help to see politics more broadly and more concretely. Politics are not just party platforms, elected officials, and interest groups lobbying in Washington. Politics are the concrete, on-the-ground actions required of virtuous people who are willing to act sacrificially for the good of their city. Yet this broader vision of politics only takes us so far. When we see and hear the politics being lived out around us, as Christians, we need to push deeper and ask what it means for us that we actually serve our Lord and God who came and is coming again as King. We need to ask what kind of actions, what kind of public, communal, and concrete actions our king requires of us, and not simply what our politicians want us to support. There's this well-known work of theology written by St. Augustine called The City of God. Augustine was living in the Roman Empire and saw all these tensions and contradictions in the politics around him. How so often Roman politicians, instead of having virtue, were corrupt and interested in their own power. How politics, rather than being practical actions that serve the good of the city, were really policies to privilege certain groups over others. A lot of Christians in Augustine's time were getting overwhelmed at how it felt like the politics all around them were falling apart. So Augustine wrote to encourage them. Did you not know, Augustine says, that you are not only citizens of the earthly city you find yourself in, Do you not remember? There actually is a heavenly city, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And it is by understanding our citizenship and allegiance to that heavenly city that we can come to work and still contribute to the common good of the earthly cities we find ourselves in. This is actually why I want to look at Revelation when it comes to our politics. You see, Revelation sees quite clearly a contest taking place between two cities. The city of Babylon, symbolized by Rome in John's day, and the city of the New Jerusalem, the eternal city of God. These two cities have two very different visions. On the one hand, you had Caesar, who structured the Roman Empire around power, wealth, and worship of himself. To be a citizen of Rome was to enjoy all of Rome's privileges, yet Caesar was always clear that according to the politics of Caesar, You were a citizen committed to upholding and serving Caesar as your Lord. This is what politics in Rome was all about. 
Your role as a citizen was to glorify Caesar, and often if you weren't a citizen, but sometimes even if you were one, you would need to suffer and sacrifice to bring glory and honor to Caesar. On the other hand, the eternal city, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, lived under the politics of Jesus. To live under the politics of Jesus was to be committed to the way of love, in which you followed Jesus by offering yourself for your neighbors, even your enemies. Sometimes you would even go so far as to lay down your life in order to proclaim that it was not actually Caesar, but Jesus who was Lord and God. As Christians, how do we today live out the politics of Jesus rather than the politics of Caesar? That's the question I'm going to be asking throughout this study. I'm going to be less focused on sorting out whether you should be a conservative or liberal, and much more focused on asking whether you are serving the politics of Caesar or you are serving the politics of Jesus. As we go, I'm going to spend time unpacking very real and pressing political concerns debated today, such as racism and abortion, economic policy, welfare, protests, and government control. Yet I intentionally want to upend your own political categories to see if we can't, through the book of Revelation, be invited to see our politics differently. The church needs to be political. Our earthly citizenship and our witness to Jesus requires us to publicly act for the common good of the cities we find ourselves in. I think Aristotle was right there. We are part of the earthly city, and we have a responsibility to seek and steward its earthly good. But Augustine was right as well. The earthly city is broken. The politics of Caesar have often been corrupted. And so instead, we must remember that we are also citizens of the city of God under the politics of Jesus. And it is only by understanding and unpacking our allegiance to our heavenly Father and to our eternal city that we can know how to act in the present. Towards that end, in the digital companion study and in every episode, I'm going to close by talking about what politics are called for. That is, what public action for the common good is offered to us by revelation for us to live as Christians. Perhaps the simplest way to put it might be, what are the politics of Jesus? And to answer that question, we now turn to Revelation. So I want to begin by opening the book of Revelation. The text is going to open with this image of a royal court proclamation in which John, the servant, prophet, messenger, has been sent to us by Jesus, our King, in order to guide us in the politics of Jesus. That's the vision I want you to hold as we enter into this Revelation text. So here's what Revelation 1, 1 1-3 says. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written, because the time is near. So that's our opening text, our opening vision. Eugene Peterson is a pastor who wrote what he thought was a poetic summary The book of Revelation could well be called reverse thunder. For Peterson, this is Revelation's opening 
thunderclap. In the Greek, the first word that stands out to you is the revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek can kind of be ambiguous here. That it could also be translated the revelation about Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The term revelation is quite literally an unveiling. Something that had previously been concealed is now about to be shown to us. Both an unveiling from Jesus Christ and an unveiling about Jesus Christ. This is where John wants us to begin. This is where our politics also begin. The starting point is the revelation, the unveiling from and about Jesus Christ. Images and symbols are going to swirl from here. I know the book of Revelation is confusing and can often feel more contested than clear. But what John wants us to know is that every insight we're about to receive is an unveiling from and about Jesus our Messiah. Yet, who is this John that's offering this unveiling to us? The early church thought the author of Revelation was in fact John the Apostle, the beloved disciple of Jesus, who they also claimed wrote the Gospel of John and the three epistles that bear his name. I've always been drawn to this position, and there's some good arguments textually that the Gospel of John and the epistles all actually share deep and related themes with the book of Revelation. Yet who specifically this John is, is perhaps not quite as important as when this John was writing. To save you a lot of research, most scholars today think Revelation was written in the 90s AD. Now this is important for two key reasons. First, the 90s AD mean that it was written after the Jewish revolts of the late 60s AD and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. You almost can't emphasize enough how shocking and seismic this destruction would have been for the Jewish people and for followers of Jesus. The temple was the seat of God's rule. It was the spiritual hub and epicenter of God's presence. It was God's assurance of his everlasting covenant to his people. And by 90 AD, the temple had been wiped out. By Rome, no less. Inevitably, this event would have been in the back of John's mind as he looked to the future. Inevitably, Jews and Christian believers would have talked quite endlessly among themselves about what the temple's destruction meant and what their future held. Inevitably, a revelation from Jesus that offers blessing would give some kind of direction about what politically Christians should be striving for in response to the absence of what used to be there with the temple. Are they supposed to rebuild the temple? Are they supposed to rebel against Rome who destroyed the temple? These were live options in the 90s, and John is going to address them. But here's the second reason the 90s were important. During the 90s, Emperor Domitian was in charge. Domitian was a fascinating political figure. He's the younger son of Vespasian and brother to Titus, both of whom, as Roman generals, were actually responsible for sieging and destroying the temple in Jerusalem. Domitian always had a bit of a chip on his shoulder for not having led any military campaigns personally. So instead, Domitian invested a serious amount of Roman wealth into massive building projects and to sponsoring gladiatorial games. He would grow increasingly controlling of the moral state of Rome. Late in his career, he would name himself Eternal Censor, 
which meant that he almost like a Supreme Court justice could make rulings on moral actions and whether or not someone should be killed. This led to him executing several senators and increasingly limiting the power of the Senate. And Domitian was particularly known for insisting, somewhat narcissistically but also somewhat insecurely, that he actually in his lifetime be referred to as Dominus et Deus, Latin for my master and my god. This led to Domitian becoming somewhat obsessed that his worship spread further and further throughout the empire, and any city that built a statue while he was alive to extend their worship of him as their master and god, Domitian would reward with lower taxes and high praise. As a side note, there is something very contemporary about politicians who seem to have big egos and always want to invest in building projects. I realize I'm already shooting my first shot across the political bow here. I'm not saying real estate is an evil profession, nor am I saying that by investing in real estate and tall buildings, Donald Trump is disqualified from being a valid political figure. If anything, I'm saying the politics of Caesar have this way of drawing big egos who are invested in big buildings being built to spread their glory and power. There's something very Babel-esque about Domitian. And thus, John is going to remind us about Babel and Babylon later on in the book of Revelation. But this isn't simply a Domitian thing, or even just a Donald Trump thing. This is a human thing in the earthly politics of Caesar. Our politicians want to build a tower that builds their name. And our politicians are afraid, much as the builders of the Tower of Babel were afraid, that if they don't build this great building, then they will all be scattered across the earth. So we're starting to get warmed up here. Revelation was pressing into politics. John is not writing in a vacuum. Instead, John is writing in a highly charged political moment in which a semi-despotic Caesar named Domination was growing increasingly powerful, increasingly controlling, and increasingly insistent on being worshipped by all. Imagine in such a context how the following verses of Revelation 1, 4 to 5 would have landed. So this is Revelation 1 again, verses 4 to 5. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now the whole book of Revelation, John is going to be fixated on that mention of the throne. Throne is going to appear 62 times in the New Testament, yet 47 of those 62 occurrences are going to be used by John here in Revelation. Before anything else comes, John is politically asking, who do you think is really on the throne? John's answer is going to be consistent and clear. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. There is this shuddering power to John's words like the universe is shifted back onto its axis. Who else would sit on the throne? Is it science, progress, communism, capitalism, the cold hard fact of cash, or the clear-eyed hope of a better tomorrow? No, neither Democrat nor Republican 
nor any other political system holds the reins of history. Even the all-powerful Caesar, who ruled most, though not all, of the known world at the time John was writing, even Caesar is not the one portrayed on the throne of heaven. But Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, he is the one who writes and offers his grace and peace. And we can trust it because he is the ruler of kings on earth. However, while this is all fine and good, if I were listening to John's revelation for the first time, I'd be tempted to cry out, what does it mean though, John? What does it mean to live out the politics of Jesus? How do we follow him who truly reigns on the throne rather than following the politics of Caesar who feels so close, so threatening, and so proximate? What is the vision for our public actions that seek the good of the city, yet that support the reign of Jesus instead of simply reinforcing the reign of Caesar? As if John knew such questions would be on our lips, he's going to say this next in Revelation 1, 5-7. Here's what it says. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Here's where I think John is starting to get down into the concrete to talk about politics. Yet perhaps these were not the politics you and I were expecting. As I've been sitting with Revelation, this, I think, is a key verse, verse 6 especially, that shares how Christians should view their public life for the good of the city. It's the first guidance we're going to receive in Revelation on how we can actually live the politics of Jesus. And here's what John is saying. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Did you catch John's political point? He made us a kingdom, priests. Both are highly charged and full of political significance. So first, I would argue that to be a kingdom reminds John's listeners of our costly distinctiveness as a people of God. Clearly, he is alluding to the statement made by Moses at Mount Sinai, where the people of Israel were told, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. While the people of Israel's covenant was established in the blood of the first Passover, the church, we're told, has been freed from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what John says in Revelation 1.5. John's getting warmed up here with his imagery, but we still shouldn't rush past how loaded and monumentally significant the covenant in blood has been for establishing a distinct kingdom, that is the church, which of course is ruled by God, who has dominion forever and ever. As St. Augustine taught us, God has been building a city the eternal city, this whole time, for a kingdom, his people, over which the politics of Jesus will reign. We were made for that city. Even now, we are citizens of that city. And even now, we are slowly preparing and advancing that city as we live out the politics of Jesus on earth. Yet the subtlety of John's expression, 
Going all the way back to the book of Exodus requires more of us and more of our politics. John specifically says we are a kingdom priests. That's how the ESV translation puts it. We're not just a nation. We also have a role, an occupation, even, I would say, a political calling that follows immediately after we are told that we are a distinct people. We are called to be priests. Yet the very closeness of the term means that some scholars think a better rendering here is the description we find in 1 Peter when he talks about our calling as royal priests. The word for kingdom is the same verb for reign or royalty. So what John is actually saying is that politically, we are royal priests. We're kingdom priests. We are reigning priests. We are both priests for royalty in the sense that our priesthood represents and stewards the reign and politics of King Jesus. Yet, as John will especially make clear in Revelation, we ourselves are reigning priests. We actively will participate in Christ's reign in the world to come. I can't help but think this is monumental. In the Reformation, it was a theology of the kingdom of priests that argued it was not just the ordained priesthood, but all believers who now served as royal priests. As Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others would work this out, they began to see that every believer in every vocation was called to act as a royal priest wherever God had placed them. So bankers were called to be royal priests at their banks. Nurses were called to be royal priests at their hospitals. Fathers and mothers were called to be royal priests in their families. And most of all, princes and nobles, if they followed Christ, were called to be royal priests in the way they governed and stewarded their lands. This theological vision was so seismic, so shocking, that it revolutionized the medieval world. It opened doors for democracy. It opened doors for new zeal by congregants to live out their faith, not just on Sunday, but in their lives and work. And it eventually would overthrow the controlling hierarchical power structures that had previously restricted people to simply fulfill whatever class and context they had found themselves in. Isn't that incredible? The politics of Jesus that call us to be a royal priest in our local context actually had the power to shift the entire political structure of medieval Europe. If that was true then, is it not still true now? Is the radical call that each of us as followers of Christ see ourselves as royal priests in the neighborhood, the workplace, the families, and the friendships we find ourselves in? Is it possible that radical call could actually change our politics in the present? Forgive me for making too much of this verse, but I think this is what John has in mind, what Peter had in mind, what Moses had in mind when they talked about our political calling to be a royal priesthood. If we were to take John seriously here, then each of us as little Christ would be Christ's representatives to our communities. As royal priests, we would find ourselves as representatives of God wherever we go. At neighborhood barbecues, we would be royal priests. As business owners and receptionists, we would be royal priests. As neighbors and friends and voters, we would be royal priests. If I haven't lost you, this is where Aristotle and Augustine come together. This is where we take seriously politics, not just as policies for someone else to decide and for us to vote upon. 
Instead, we view politics as our own personal responsibility to offer concrete public actions for the good of the city and the good of the community we live in. Jesus is telling us as citizens of heaven, we have actually been anointed for this very task, to be royal priests wherever we find ourselves. Now, to get this even more down to the ground, what would such a priesthood look like? Ironically, there's a story I stumbled across of an actual priest. Now, I realize this has tension because to describe a priest can separate us from our own everyday calling to the priesthood. Yet I like this story because this priest in particular saw how his priesthood was connected to his politics. So this story I stumbled across comes from the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Now, I, as an American before marrying a Northern Irish woman, did not know much about the Troubles. Yet the basic gist, if you don't know, is that in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there were increasing demonstrations of violence across Belfast, Northern Ireland, between Catholics and Protestants, particularly in armed paramilitaries that were struggling for control under British rule. One particular week shocked the onlooking world for its brutality. In 1988, a large crowd gathered for the funeral of three Catholic soldiers in Milltown Cemetery in Belfast. Yet this crowd was unexpectedly attacked by a Protestant paramilitary member who both shot multiple pistols and threw grenades into the crowd, killing three and wounding 60. Three days later, when the Catholic community gathered again, this time for the funeral of the three who were killed at the cemetery attack, confusion erupted as two British soldiers dressed in civilians' clothes had taken a wrong turn and found themselves in the funeral procession. The Catholic crowd, fearing another attack, dragged the two soldiers from their vehicle and mercilessly beat and then stripped them. It was the epitome of confusion, retaliation, and rage that marked the conflict, with both sides distraught and disgusted with the other, willing to act out in extremes. Yet a photographer present happened to capture a photo of a Catholic priest named Alec Reed. Reed ran over as the soldiers were being beaten, and he urged the crowd to stop. When they finally backed off from the unconscious bodies, Reed would bend over to give one of the soldiers mouth to mouth, calling for an ambulance, though none ever came. The photographer captured this staggering moment as Reed looks up directly into the lens of the camera, kneeling next to a dead, bloodied body, with blood on Reed's mouth from his attempted mouth to mouth. The photo quite literally gripped the world. It was a symbol of the immense cost of the conflict between two political parties that had resorted to relentless retaliation. Yet oddly, it was also this image of hope, of a priest who would stand in the gap between Protestant and Catholic and offer his own life for the life of a soldier. Even more incredibly, it was later found out that Alec Reed had been working as a go-between between Protestant and Catholic leaders. He actually, on that very day, had papers in his coat that would be stained with the blood of the soldiers he had tried to help, that would form the very basis of the first peace talks that would ultimately become the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Now, I know, I know, most of us are not caught up in the troubles. 
Though for our family and friends who live in Northern Ireland, the troubles still emerge from time to time. Yet I love this striking picture displayed by a royal priest who is willing to stand in the gap between warring parties. We may not often resort to physical violence in the Americas and elsewhere, yet sometimes we do. And our words and our political tensions certainly can be filled with that form of relentless retaliation that so marked the troubles in Northern Ireland. It was, I believe, the politics of Caesar that demanded power and control. It was the politics of Caesar who worshipped the gods of retaliation and violence. Yet the politics of Jesus, lived out by a simple priest, looked like a man rushing to the side of his enemies and attempting to give them mouth to mouth, even while he was actively working for the peace, the shalom of his city and his people. Here's the problem I have with contemporary politics that Christians in America far too often get swept up into. Democracies are great. I love being part of a democracy. I'm proud of our American democracy and what it has accomplished. But democracies can sometimes woo Christians into settling into the belief that the only political responsibility they have is to vote. That's it. To be a good citizen of the city, to use Aristotle's term, we simply vote. And maybe if we're really political, we will post about our viewpoints and preferences. Vote and post. That's what we've got. And the rest of the week, we go to work, we drop off kids at our school, and hope that somewhere else the politicians will take care of the politics for us. But what if we actually took this call to be royal priests as a political charge? What if instead of simply voting or posting, we actually saw our jobs, our neighborhoods, and our lives as the domains in which we serve the post of royal priests under the politics of Jesus? What would that even look like? In the companion study to Revelation, I give some time to unpacking what I see as the seven public actions associated with priests. It's a great worksheet, and I highly encourage you to check it out. But for the podcast, I'll briefly mention three public actions I see in Father Alec Reed that we could all politically do in our own spheres of life. So the first public action of the priest is to minister. Priests were responsible for ministering the presence of God. And we as the priesthood of believers, in which the Spirit of God dwells, can radically reclaim a role of ministry in every sphere of life we find ourselves in. We bring God's presence with us to the grocery store. We offer it to the person who gives us mail. We minister God's presence to our neighbors, to the homeless that we encounter, to our coworkers. I realize this sounds simple, but can you imagine the implications if you even just went back through your last week and imagine yourself wearing a priestly collar? What kind of needs are you already proximate to that you could meet if you saw yourself as a royal priest? What kind of healing and hope and words that minister the presence of God could you bring to the relationships that are already around you in your day-to-day life? The second public action of the priest is to intercede. They intercede on behalf of people to God. A couple years back, I started this simple practice with others where on Mondays we'd pray for our city. It looked different every Monday. Sometimes we'd pray over policies. Sometimes we'd pray over places, particularly places of hurt and brokenness. Sometimes we wouldn't know what to pray, so we'd just lift up our city. 
I started going even further where I try to walk the cities on Monday and pray for places, the apartments, the street corners, and the shops that I always pass by but rarely had eyes to see for the need, the hurt, and the brokenness that could be waiting for me to engage. It was amazing how much even these simple prayers worked on me. They started to put this political burden on me, like I actually was responsible for the good of this city. Yet the hope that sprung up was that it really wasn't my work, but God's work, God's blessing, the very kingship of Jesus that would be required. The third public action of the priest is to mediate on behalf of people to God. In the priesthood, if you had a dispute with a neighbor or if you had transgressed against God, you would bring your offering to the priest. It's kind of funny to realize that anyone who took this charge seriously meant that the priest was involved in almost all the affairs of the people. They were involved in their sins. They were involved in their disputes. And one of the most radical parts of Father Alec Reed's involvement in the Troubles was his willingness and even his desire to mediate between Catholics and Protestants. Now, I think this could look differently for each of us. But what if you looked at your life through the eyes of mediation? Who is it that you might listen to even more deeply or closely? Is there perhaps someone whose confession you could hear? Who you could advocate on behalf of to God? Are there perhaps conflicts around you, conflicts you're even involved in, that when you view yourself with the eyes of a royal priest, you see your task be to shift towards mediation rather than fighting for control or power? What could such mediation look like for you? These challenges to embrace your own calling as a royal priest are not exactly new, but there is something radical about shifting our politics here. As a Christian, you're not merely a voting or posting citizen of your nation and state. As a follower of Jesus, you are actually a royal priest, an agent of your king, placed in your neighborhood to serve the city with public actions that minister, intercede, and mediate God. This call to public action, to politics lived out as royal priests, I think is at the heart of Revelation, at the heart of Scripture even and at the heart of the politics of Jesus. I think all our other episodes, all our other political actions shared each episode, will build off this first one and will interweave and deepen what it looks like and means to be a royal priest. Yet I think somewhat intentionally, John is not yet finished in this first chapter. If you read through Revelation 1, you'll notice that the political charge he's just given us is followed by an even bigger vision. John's actually going to describe to us what he sees when King Jesus approaches. I think what John is saying here is that if we are to be royal priests, we're actually going to need a vision of what it means to follow our royal king. We need to see Jesus if we are to live the politics of Jesus. And hence, this is what John's vision describes and ends chapter 1 with. This is from Revelation 1, 12 to 16. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, 
refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So much of this language is strange, even terrifying. John is actually so freaked out by what he sees that he's going to drop down as though dead in the following verse. Yet it is the way that Jesus was described that's meant to startle and disrupt us. Clearly Jesus was fully human. Nothing about his appearance to the twelve disciples, even after his resurrection, would have been indicated otherwise. Yet Jesus was also fully divine. And there were these moments throughout his life, like the transfiguration, where we're given these hints that the king we serve is so much more than merely human. Yet what I love here in this description is that John is borrowing all these Old Testament visions that people had never fully understood before. In fact, clearly underneath his description here is Daniel 10, where Daniel has been fasting and praying, and all of a sudden he's hit with this powerful vision that Daniel is going to say looks like this, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. It's from Daniel 10. Are you catching what's happening here in Revelation? John sees the same man that Daniel saw, yet he realizes that this is actually Christ, clothed in a long robe, golden sash, eyes like flames, feet like burnished bronze, and his voice like the roar of many waters. Earlier in the book of Daniel, Daniel had seen another vision that he called the Ancient of Days, who he said interestingly sat on a throne of fire with hair like white wool. Again, John has remixed Daniel, and yet has realized that Christ is in fact the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, whom Daniel prophesied would, this is from Daniel 7.14, have all tongues and nations and people worship him, and whose dominion would never pass away. How do we carry such a vision of this startling Son of Man? A vision of Jesus with white wool for hair, with eyes that are flaming, with words that sound like the multitude of rushing water. How do you carry such a vision with you into your politics? How do you hold on to Jesus not just as the vulnerable and suffering Savior hanging from the cross, but the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and who has a sword coming out of his mouth? Does this change how we vote? Does this change how we serve our community as royal priests? I think John thought it would. I think that's why John was given these words to give to us. This doesn't mean being a royal priest is easy. As we've already mentioned, John is going to drop to the floor after this vision, as though dead. He's terrified by what he's seen. To truly comprehend Christ your King will likely do that to you sometimes. But even with his fiery eyes and white-wooled hair, Jesus is gentle and firm in his reply to John. Verse 18 is going to say, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Our King Jesus rules over even death itself. Our King Jesus has come to cast out fear, 
Yet there is still work for the royal priests to do. Jesus closes chapter 1 of Revelation by saying, Get up. I need you to write down what you've seen. If this series is going to take you anywhere, I hope it first is going to give you a clearer vision of who your king is. To see the politics of Jesus expressed in Jesus' life and reign. But I also hope this study does not stop there. I hope that increasingly as you see Jesus, you begin to realize how the politics of Jesus diverge from the politics of Caesar, expressed as Republican or Democrat or anything else. And as you see the politics of Jesus, you would increasingly see the role you have to play as a royal priest in living his reign out on this earth. Would such a calling and such a vision change how you vote? Maybe, but it most certainly would change how you love and live and hope and trust. This is only the beginning. We have only started to unpack the politics of Jesus. Next episode will continue with Revelation 2-3 to and the seven letters to the seven churches. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace.